Well, thank you so much for joining me, Ambrosia Vertesi um, of the Operator Collective, formerly the head of people at Duo Security and Hootsuite. Um, why don't you take a moment and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you're doing these days? Yeah, well, today I have a cold, so I apologize in advance, but in these current climates, I'm happy that it's just a cold. Um, and I am now with Operator Collective, which is a uh, female-founded venture capital firm that is a bit of different in the fact that we have um, in our collective, we have 130 tech executives, 90% women, 40% people of color. And we um, believe that that's a competitive advantage in investing in and advising and accelerating the next kind of generation of, of organizations. And so I do a lot of different things there. I'm an operating partner. So that may be working on you know the company. It might be uh, working um, with that network of people that I shared, or also um, advising our 50 portfolio companies, founders, and organizations. Awesome. How would you describe what you do to a five-year-old? To a five-year-old? Well, I have a two-year-old, and it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot more basic than that. Um, yeah. I, think, I think what I would say is that I work with people to help them operationalize and, and build their organizations and cultures. Awesome. Thank you. How do you define culture at the highest level? Free of an organization, free of a company, what's culture mean to you when you hear that word? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, culture is a feeling to me. I think that people have a feeling when they hear that word. Um, whether or not that's a bad feeling or a good feeling um, is defined as, you know, whatever that shared belief, value, and behavior system is that, you know, creates that culture. Um, but it really is a feeling for me. I think there's there's parts we can measure and parts we can't. Awesome. Um, imagine that you're creating the ideal organizational culture. You have no restrictions like cost or time. What are the two or three things that would be most important to you? I actually don't believe cost is the <laughs> defining factor of culture. I think we've seen that. Um, there are many examples of that. Um, I really do fundamentally believe that there, there needs to be, um, you know, a, a shared sense of, you know, what is the value proposition? Um, what does that look like? Um, what are the, the values that we're going to bring into the organization? And how do we operationalize those? Um, I think that those are the main criteria for designing a culture or architecting a culture. And so those would be the things that I would pay you know specific attention to and then i would really focus on what's a leadership model um, and how are we going to take all of those components and kind of enable and empower our leaders uh, to you know i really am into this microsoft you know uh, terms that you're using around model coaching care um, i really like that idea and um, thinking about how you bring all these leaders, especially right now, from tons of different organizations, backgrounds, locations. Um, how do you bring them into a shared space? Uh, I think you have to have a leadership model that makes it very easy for people to understand exactly what you mean um, when you're talking about what your shared beliefs, values, and behaviors should look like, and then what the expectation is of them, and then how it, what actions will be taken when it isn't either isn't working for the business and they need to grow it 
um, or they've stepped over a line away from what the shared um, expectation is. Nice. I love that model coach and care. That's a really, a really great leadership model. I also liked at the beginning there, you kind of Occam's razored it for us a little bit around, you know, what those fundamental first steps are. Um, you know, most interesting to me when I ask this question is no one ever talks about anything that's cost related, um, even though that's included in the question. And thank you so much for like pointing that out because no one ever brings up anything that's like, oh, we'd, you know, sometimes they say I'd have a bigger office. But other than that, um, you know, there's not much that people are looking at cost there. I think there's a lot of studies that show that perks don't even come close to purpose when you know people are making their decisions. I think they're you know they're appealing on an initial um, kind of a, getting someone's attention. Surely they do some good marketing in that regard from a talent strategy perspective, um, but they don't define. Um, I don't believe that, and I don't think that they make a difference. I don't think you can buy your culture. I think your culture is earned every single day. And it's so fragile that mm. if you don't live up to it and if you don't defend it or have it grow with your business, I, I fundamentally believe that culture grows with us. Um, and, and you don't make sure that people know how to navigate through it, especially if you're in early stage hyper growth, um, you can't get that trust back. Yeah. And we hear the word toxic used a lot. Um, and then you watch the spend go up on like culture initiatives, tooling, um, you know, surveys and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, uh, I really do think it comes down to people trusting that you will protect the culture and them as a result. Yeah, definitely. Um, on that kind of following on that, how do you communicate with leaders about how culture is really a never ending ongoing journey to growth and improvement rather than a series of sprints or a destination? Have you ever had to convince a leader of this reality? Definitely. Um, I think that one of the challenges I'm, as a people practitioner, one of the challenges is really ensuring that, especially in the leadership team, everyone feels not just a, a shared awareness uh, and ability to act within the culture and what that means, but a shared accountability for it. And if they feel a shared accountability for it, there's an opportunity for the people leader or whomever is the appropriate person in that business to then say, okay, well then we're gonna bring this into areas of the business where we all share responsibility. And that would be things like strategic planning. Um, you can build a values or whatever you wanna call it, but a, um, an operationalization framework in which you can go to the executive team and say, if this is a business strategy, this is the, the budget, this is the roadmap. And if I try and align all of those things into our values, I don't, I see deficits or I don't see us making investments in this area, or maybe this actual value doesn't serve us any longer. Um, one of the things that I've seen uh, leadership teams do is kind of like check the values box in the beginning of a conversation and be like, these are our values. Should we change them? And then they just talk about it in a silo as if it's not completely reflected upon based on what the business is trying to achieve. Um, it is the action, especially in tech, it's people. Um, it is them taking that action um, and behaviors towards the outcomes of the business. Mm -hmm. And so an example of that would be, you know, if your one of your values is learning together and there is nothing in your business plan or strategy or go-to-market around education or learning, 
And then you go into the organization and there's, you know, a very uh, kind of an under resourcing in leadership development or career development or even retrospectives, um, Mm -hmm. anything that people can actually wrap their head around and go, oh, that's there's a demonstration of that. Um, I I think you're going to run into problems. And so I, I always encourage, you know, where I've been successful in getting leaders on board is. It isn't, look at our values, they all look great, sounds good. The employee val- the employee survey says everyone's still happy. Okay, now let's talk about the business and the strategy. Um, I've always had success being like, talk about the business and the strategy and then how our values will fuel those business outcomes. Um, and then let's see what's not working. Uh, I think that that's a, an effective strategy, not to say that it's been flawless. <laughs> But I have a few proof points that it's it's made a difference. I like that, you know, the the whole, you know, that whole culture eat strategy for breakfast, which has now become culture is strategy. And I think you've done a really good job there of encapsulating sort of that that relationship between culture and strategy and business strategy and how they need to feed each other. Um, how has your work for, transitioned and changed from driving growth and scale for a single organization to your role at the Operator Collective, where you're tasked with enabling these same processes for multiple organizations at a time? Yes, I would say it has changed in terms of having to really think programmatically. I'm not the people leader focusing on one um, organization and going you know, right down to the tactics. Um, you know, I, I can't do that for 50 companies. And so it ends up being, how do I package, you know, those learnings, those, um, I don't call them best practices, I call them progressive practices uh, in the places that we know are foundational, um, where we know that if people have pay equity, if people have clarity on career development, if people have these certain foundational pillars in place, um, and we can help them think about it as a huge strategy from day one, um, then that can be helpful. So I produce a lot of resources on that. The second one is how do I connect these people together and facilitate conversations around what that means, especially in times of uncertainty? Um, There isn't a playbook for the past pandemic year. And um, I think my role is really dipping into communities and networks um, in the operator collective and then, you know, in the HR open source community um, that I co-founded with Lars Schmidt and redefining HR and other places where I can direct traffic into centers of excellence or centers of sharing really is probably the right way to say it, where as people are considering how do we tackle all of these new frontiers in the future of work, that they feel like they can, uh, I can be a resource to help them tap into information instead of kind of being the expert myself. Um, yeah. Nice. Um, is there a, a handbook or guidebook full of progressive practices on the horizon potentially? I definitely don't have capacity to write a book, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I have so much respect for people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. Uh, there's a book called Redefining HR that came out recently that I think does a good job of like collecting practices. Nice. And I, I have a feeling that that's gonna, going to be um, the new focus for practitioners. Um, I mean, they've always tried to look at what several different organizations are doing, but really in this time of uncertainty, particularly around hybrid work models or certain aspects of um, 
of, of this post-pandemic scenario where people are really still trying to figure out what's right for them. Um, and they're exhausted and they've been the chief pandemic officer for the last year. Um, I think they're going to be looking for peer case studies, peer learning. So I think we're gonna see a lot more um, compilations and aggregations versus you know, one book saying, here's, here's the path. Um, yeah, and benchmarks, like kind of the work you're doing, I think is, is gonna come into play for people in a way of them trying to feel that they have their footing again. Yeah, it's always important to know where you stand against, you know, your biggest competitors, the industry you're in, the vertical, um, you know, that's really key, whether it's your social media marketing or your employer brand or your revenue numbers, you know, people are, it doesn't really matter how one stacks up against, um, you know, a company that they don't compete with, but everyone wants to know what the competitor is doing for sure. Um, what have you learned or adopted from your work um, at the Operator Collective that you wish you'd known or had in your previous roles as um, as a people leader in a, in a single company? Yeah, um, I think. Well, I'm not a practitioner, so it's a little it's a little bit different at the moment. I'm doing right. a lot more advising, um, but I really do think that I I honed in on on that benchmarking side. I think I always had a community side and a peer network um, that I was able to leverage, um, but tapping into uh, being able to say, okay, where are exactly those benchmarks and how do I bring them in? Um, and I think at Operator, I, I think this is actually a result of Operator Collective, um, but it's happening outside of that as well, is just a much stronger investment in, um, kind of the human first side of wellness. Um, so things around financial wellness, um, around mental well-being, um, those kinds of practices, I think have matured a lot um, significantly over the past two years. And I think the tooling associated, um, I, you know, I won't sell our investments, but we've invested in some of those companies. Um, and I've learned a lot as both a, you know, former practitioner, but also um, thinking about you know, if I were to go into another organization or as I advise the founders now and, and the people practitioners now, that would be something that I would have put a much higher investment in in the past if we knew what we knew now. Awesome. That's a great insight. Thanks for sharing. Um, tell us about a time that you were able to be a part of a group or a team that built culture successfully. What do you remember being the hardest part of that successful development of culture? I feel like I've been fortunate to be um, part of a, a multiple number of teams who have been successful in that. Um, and if the question is, what is the hardest part um, about what that what that kind of journey looks like and what that um, building looks like. I, I think we face it today. I think it's the global aspect um, of when you think about, you know, customer mapping or customer personas, and you think about that as a product or as a business, if you bring that into like in a, a culture operationalization design or a people operational design, and you go, we're in 34 countries. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of different compounding factors of uh, what is that human experience? What, what is their cultural experience? What are the compliance regulations? What is the value proposition culturally, professionally? Um, there may be some things that do not translate well with some of your other markets. 
those have always been the most complex considerations. Doesn't matter the organizational size and they all approach it with their own kind of flavor. But I, I, it's also the most difficult thing to measure, you know, other than, you know, you can kind of get some ENPS and some different kind of things on that. But it's, I, I feel that that's the frontier right now when we think about designing culture that organizations now are going into dozens of countries much earlier. Um, and the thoughtfulness and the intentionality and the kind of um, the engineering that's required to build a culture that can be um, clear and connected and also have equity um, in those uh, you know, even down to the tactics where there isn't equity from a compliance perspective, that is very challenging. Um, and and that's that gives me a lot of energy, though. I really think about, you know, past experiences where we've been successful in some of those areas of really um, putting intentionality into practice. But now I think it's a whole new ballgame. Awesome. Yeah, that's really insightful. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, this is one that you've touched on a couple of times, um, but I want to bring it all together. Yeah. How do you how do you see sort of technology and startup workplace culture transforming over the last sort of 10 to 15 years? Really from your perspective, you know, you think about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, what technology and startup culture look like versus today. And I feel like it's night and day. What do you see? Yes, um, I I would be drooling over the kind of tools that are out there now in 2010, thinking about, you know, being at Hootsuite and, and trying to scrape together. Um, and yeah, does, what's the integrations look like? Okay, no, can we build it? Um, <laughs> like it's a lot of um, duct taping uh, from a technology perspective or a lot of over-engineering in some areas and under-engineering in others, it felt very, um, difficult to come up with a tech stack as a people practitioner that both met you where you are and was ready for your next level. Um, you know, particularly if you think about early stage tech, particularly from, you know, 500 to 1,000 employees, a lot of stuff broke. And I, I understand like mid-market to enterprise. I understand all of the incentives for that from a product perspective. Mm -hmm. But from a practitioner perspective, it was there was a lot of frustration. And if the practitioners were frustrated, the employees were 10x that. Um, but also I think the um, awareness and education of practitioners about what it means to build a tech stack, what does um, you know a good UI UX look like? I, all of our collective intelligence about technology has advanced significantly since then. Um, but there are, some amazing tools out there now that I think are, you know, keeping in mind the employee experience, which I think is, is completely necessary as, as that user, but they are not forgetting that there's still a practitioner on the back end who has to manage all of the privacy and compliance and security. Um, so I just think we're beyond light years from where we were. And I have seen on, on the venture capital side now a huge investment over the last 12 months in people tech, workforce tech, whatever you want to call it, uh, that isn't just focused on distributed work. There's a lot more to it. And I think we're going to see uh, a lot more investment and in startups kind of spur up. And then I think they'll start to um, constrict and maybe uh, kind of come together on a bunch of a huge wave of M&A. 
um, as platforms kind of come together. But it is an interesting time to be in people tech because of all of the opportunity that's on the table right now. Yeah, definitely. There are the big suites out there. I don't know, like the work days, and you probably know more about these players than I do. Are they doing the sort of the Facebook thing, buying up the feature companies that are creating great point solutions and, and loading them into their big suite? Is that happening yet? Uh, I think it happens on a pretty regular basis. Um, I would imagine right now there's probably even deeper strategy sessions going on with, with the large big tech um, players about how they make sure that they stay ahead of the next wave. Um, but that's great. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic for, for the practitioners and the employees. Um, what I think is, has truly shifted over the last 12 months is a high empathy for people leaders, facilities and real estate leaders, anyone who's doing the company building or the organizational management. I think the empathy level has never been higher. And I think that translates into you know, lots of different places. Um, and my hope is that it will continue to translate into additional resourcing because the job has never been bigger, um, but it is in tooling. And when people see an opportunity to create technology and people tech is appealing to them instead of averting, I think we're in a good place. <laughs> awesome, love it. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, when you think of like poor organizational culture, what are the first three things that come to mind for you? Poor organizational culture. Fear is the first one. Um, I think there is so much that happens when fear is in, in the culture. The mm. second one would be um, ambiguity, not mm -hmm. knowing how, or, you know, lack of clarity, not knowing how to navigate things. And then the other one would be feeling undervalued, mm -hmm. um, and underseen. And you can use the word undervalued in, in a lot of different ways. You could apply it on a DEI context. You could apply it in, um, a lot of different ways, but those three pieces, I feel like are cover a lot of ground in terms of what I would define as, you know, a, a very um, uh, toxic or, or unappealing culture. Awesome. Yeah. When I, I think of all the responses from other people I've interviewed, that most of them roll up into those three that you've described. So that's awesome. Thank you for um, bringing that all together for us. Um, what would you, what advice would you give to somebody who is looking to move from an individual contributor role to a leadership role in the people and culture space? So a, a people practitioner rolling coming into, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think right now there is, we're going to see a big wave of this because I think we're, we're seeing a mass exodus of, of people leaders who are burnt out and on sabbatical and there's a gap in the market for the next generation of leaders. My advice would be this, um, that you make sure that you have places to get, um, and this can be places or people, where you go to um, fill your own tank. It's a deeply lonely position if you feel that you don't have anyone that you can go to um, and you're in service of others all the time. And so I would say find that person or that place. I would say the next one would be to find that person or place for resources. Um, it is very difficult to stay on top of things and um and what's coming and i think the next wave is just going to be twice as fast and 
Uh, and then the other one is to keep a growth mindset and know that it is a very difficult thing to try and take on the burden of everyone's happiness and likely unachievable to make everyone truly happy. But you can be the product manager that engineers the organization to think about how you create opportunity for that. Um, and the people leaders where I see them really struggle are the ones that take on the burden of, I want everyone to be happy. I want them to have the best experience. And they just feel like they can't win. <laughs> you know? Like maybe even if they're winning 99% of the time, that 1% is soul crushing. Um, and then that goes, Goes back to now find the person who will fill your tank and now find the resources and then keep the growth mindset and then <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> awesome. Um, what are the most impactful things um, for you in your experience to translate organizational vision for people and teams? What are the most, can you say that again? Sorry. Yeah, so um, we often at the highest level, um, maybe in the C-suite or in the leadership space, we have our organizational vision. And to your point, you've talked about a couple of times how important it is to translate and communicate that to create transparency. What are the most effective or impactful things in your experience that you can use to translate that organizational vision for individual contributors and for teams uh, from the really from the top? Yeah, I think there's moments in the employee experience where you have you can captivate their attention and you can communicate early and often. Um, what that might look like. So I, I, people will say onboarding and I'm like, what about before, what about the first time you talk to them? <laughs> what about actually even before that, your careers page, your employer branding? Um, I would really encourage people to think about those moments of opportunity where people are interacting or experiencing your employer brand or your culture, um, however you want to term that. And what are they seeing? And how are you proving that? Um, you know, if you say this on your careers page, is it reflected on Glassdoor as an example? Um, how can you create moments where employees are interacting with the business and saying, I heard your intent and now I see your action. And then creating, um, you know, active listening channels more than just, you know, a quarterly or annual employee engagement survey, but active listening channels where people feel as though they can share, you know, recognize when they see those moments um, or call out when they don't and have that be very well known for the employees that they're equally responsible for championing and, and shepherding these moments. And so going back to a lot of the people um, structures and strategies are all there. They just haven't been communicated to the employees early and often. This is how we do this. This is when it's not okay. When you see something, here's what you do. And then here's what we do when that happens. Um, I don't think that employees have survey fatigue. I think they have lack of action fatigue. And I've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I would, if, if I was like, okay, you, you gave me the message. Like if you see something, say something and then nothing happened or I don't actually know what happened then. Um, and then there's, you know, people will say all hands. Um, are great opportunities or internal communication points are great opportunities to showcase your values. I would encourage people to do more than just put them on a slide and talk about how we live them. I would encourage people to share the kinds of things that I mentioned earlier around show them your strategic framework where you say this is the slide or the 
the framework that we use when we do our strategic planning to see where we're investing, where we're underinvested, where we're performing here, uh, so that they can see the business actively seeking opportunity um, for investment and growth. And then I believe that employees will start to go, oh, okay, well, then I will seek active opportunities. Instead of seeing values and culture as a static thing that they're just intended to behaviorally live up to, um, it's a it's a it's like a child. It has to grow. You have to <laughs> invest in it. Um, so that would be my long answer. Awesome. I love that how action focused <laughs> your response was. Just so many of the things were about action and showing as opposed to you know, potentially lip service or um, some of the things that that we might traditionally think of. You know, the posters on the wall and that kind of thing. Um, what advice, and you probably this is probably a question that you um, handle on a regular basis, but what advice would you give to small, nimble uh, people and culture teams? Um, and in your experience, where do you think they can make an outsized impact on their businesses when they're small and nimble in the early stages? Early stage is hard. There's no um, way around that. If you are people practitioner number one, as I have been, and Kemp, you know, <laughs> you were there too. Um, it is a challenge because there is a, a pretty big delta between expectation and, and your team. Um, that's not unique to you. You know, the, the product and the sales and the marketing team all feel that same um, feeling. However, their customers aren't sitting beside them every day. <laughs> and, um, and so I think for early stage people, practitioners, I think their main and, and to the founders, their main investment is um, is making sure that they they equally resource the the people function and the recruiting function. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah, I think the, to your point, the priority can probably sit a lot on recruitment as you rapidly scale and grow, um, and it can be tough to resource the other side. So that's a, a really key point. Um, so we're going to use our imaginations now. Imagine that you have a time machine. You go back to meet yourself on your first day at Hootsuite. What would you tell yourself at that point to prepare you for this to be successful in your work, knowing what you know today? Yeah, I may give my I, I may say the same thing that I would say to other people going into a leadership yeah. position. Um, the other thing that I might I might also say is um, really to consider pace. Um, you know that Hootsuite grew extremely quickly, and and that's a hard thing to keep up with. And I, I think back then I, I probably had a lot more energy because I didn't have a, a young child, but um, there were moments where I could have taken a breath and been like, okay, here's the time to rest. Um, and I didn't take this, the moments that I should have. It took me like two or three years into that um, role to really be like, why am I giving everyone else permission to recharge and not myself? And so that is something that I think that self-care um, is really challenging for everyone. But I think, you know, giving yourself permission to take that self-care and not, you know, that was not company inflicted. They were like more than happy for me to, to go on vacation, but I wasn't living up in the early days to not checking my email or not responding or whatever it was. Um, so that would be in addition to the advice I gave generally, probably that. And I would awesome. probably add that to my advice for everyone else. 
That is kind of profound because not a lot of people would be thinking about that. And I think that's, you know, and what you had me thinking about, and I know I, I've I had similar experiences in my own position where you're just like, you so want to make things happen and you feel like your efforts are, but in hindsight with, you know, sort of that retrospect, you realize I didn't need to do that or, you know, do that whole thing where I spent those seven 14 hour days in a row, you know, you look back and you're like, I could have done that in 10 hours or whatever it might've been. Um, I really feel that. Um, so we're in a crazy situation. You know, a lot of hiring managers around the world are dealing with an increasingly challenging hiring environment. What would you recommend to smaller companies do to compete with bigger companies when they can't compete purely on compensation or financial compensation? Yeah, spend a lot of my day talking about this, Kim. Um, <laughs> in the market currently, um, you know, it's a pretty wild place out there right now. Um, I do believe that the previous tactic, of course, for small organizations that couldn't compete on comp was to try and compete on either perks or flexibility or whatever. Um, and, and maybe that, that playing field is even now. I think, you know, startups are, are paying market, they're competing on cash, they're competing on several different fronts. And then I think it becomes ex even more important right now to compete on culture. Because the, as much as I say, you know, the, the people side has matured and evolved and, and is deeply progressive now, so are the candidates. Candidates are very aware of how it feels to get corporate jargoned and not to say that they weren't before but their tolerance is zero um their tolerance is zero for you not having flexibility for their you know home life or them being a human before they're an employee and because that's the expectation for talent now and i think it's you know we're watching people in this great resignation they're calling it um leaving their jobs because they're being pushed back into the office I would really encourage early stage companies to consider making those investments we've been discussing today around um, investing in really defining, communicating, and then kind of proving and operationalizing what are your cultural competitive advantages. And then where are you promoting those? Because even though it's a noisy talent market, you know, LinkedIn is a very noisy place. Um, people still hear grains of truth. They stick out like a sore thumb. And so if you have an opportunity to really craft that and then you know, grab a megaphone in whatever way is appropriate to your business, um, you will still get great talent. You will still compete. And, and that goes all the way to the executive level, to the schools. Um, that would be my recommendation. And then just to just really carefully choose where your audience is. Um, if you, you know, I worked in cybersecurity, no one was on Twitter, um, you know, leaving Hootsuite where Twitter was like actually a source of hire, <laughs> um, it required a really big shift in our talent strategy. So really think about where is my community, where are my people, and then how do I speak to them in a way where when they see this, they will have an emotional reaction of like, that feels real. I want to learn more. Awesome. Um, this year, two companies in particular, Coinbase and Basecamp, made we public announcements. 
<laughs> regarding their desire and initiative to not weigh in on political or sensitive topics. This has been seen from two extremes, either as uh, a smart move to focus the organization or as a potentially cowardly move or a move that may disenfranchise um, some peoples. How do you think organizations can navigate the increasingly challenging world where taking a side on an issue may alienate the opposing group? How do you see these moves by these organizations? Yeah, I won't speak to those organizations yep. um, specifically, although I will say they have definitely fueled many, many, many conversations um, in my community and, and, um, and in our portfolio companies as well. Um, and I'll go back to that idea of fear for a second. Um, I think that there's a lot of fear that's generated around this topic. Um, fear from the employees that, you know, am I working at a place that aligns with my values and um, where I sit on, on this kind of thing? And I think there's a lot of fear from organizations that they're going to misstep and that the penalty is severe, mm. um, that you have to be on one side or the other. Otherwise, you're complacent or otherwise you're here you have no you're, you're just going to get dragged around in the middle um and so i i think for me personally i think we are humans before we are employees and that does not mean that i think that we should hold in all hands for every single scenario that happens in the world um i, I think that that would be disruptive to the business and to the people um, but I think there is a balance in the middle. I think we're still finding it. I do believe that organizations, that people do expect in their employee value proposition for organization, organizations to share signals, indicators, clear communication on how they feel about certain things. I don't think that they expect a press release on every single scenario, but I believe that pressure is high. I think it's part of the new employment world. Um, I think your employer brand should absolutely have a social pillar in it now, not social media, but a <laughs> social um, or human element to mm -hmm. it and where you want to, um, where, where you want to speak on that side and how that shows up in your business and, and what do you do in certain situations. Um, and you should work really closely with marketing. You should work really closely with your DEI or ERG groups. Um, and make sure that you feel that it is true to you um, because pageantry is also a very dangerous thing. Um, and there are a lot of people who looked really admirable and amazing and then a year later really didn't fall through either. And that's, um, again, it goes back to proving it. I think we're, I think the new frontier is prove it that's my that's i'm just nice. gonna call it today and be like if there isn't action um then you're in big trouble awesome thank you um just wrapping up here a couple more questions um what does it mean to you to scale culture quote unquote <laughs> and, and well why don't we just start with that what does that mean to you when you hear that i know it's a bit buzzy and it's probably something people throw at you all the time what does that mean when yeah. you hear that when I hear scale culture, I mean, I think we spoke about this earlier and the fact that I see it as, as something that grows um, and needs to be nurtured. And, and I see it as requiring the same kind of roadmap with, you know, identified goals and strategies and tactics and resources as a product needs. Um, nice. And I think, you know, the talent strategy and the people strategy requires that, but I think the culture is 
is that third prong where, at least in my perspective, both of those things would fall under my scope. Um, but I wouldn't bury it into my people's strategy. I would pull it out. Um, and the reason for that is twofold. One, my talent and people strategy would be the responsibility of my team to execute as a departmental or business unit function. And the culture one, although of course we are, like I said, the product managers and pushing it out and we are solely responsible. I wanna have that in a different place so I could isolate it and talk to the business about it and have them see us building a unique product roadmap mm. to that um, and have us publish that and share it and not have it be a small data point under you know my 400 hires or my you know other other things um, that can sometimes take away it's almost a it almost becomes like a bullet in a bigger plan where people are like oh well you just assume the culture will grow as we grow um, I think it it uh, requires to scale culture I think it requires its own product roadmap. I love that. That's like giving me a little bit of tingles here. Just, uh, well, you know, just I can see how valuable and important that is. And just like a product roadmap, you're going to have your, you know, top 10 and these are the things we're going to do next quarter. And you know what? You're going to adjust um, because that's just the nature of a growing organization is that things change and your priorities might change. And I just think that's a really great way to think about it so that, you know, you're putting that visibility. Maybe, you know, the leadership stays a little bit longer into the future. You don't want people to think things are coming that aren't coming. Um, but I can just see how that can help in so many ways, uh, especially for maybe leaders who are, you know, culture is something that is less of a priority for them, you know, that they might be more oriented towards uh, brand or revenue or, you know, pure growth. Um, I think that's a really great thought. Um, what are some of the most helpful things that you do with your partners and organizations that you work with in your current role to help them take this super intense process one step at a time? Yeah. I think the first just starts with conversations, um, creating space for those dialogues. When I was at Duo, the founder, Doug Song, who is, is an extraordinary engineer of culture and deeply um, admirable, we would have our one-on-ones and then we would have a separate one-on-one -on -one every single week for hours <laughs> that was dedicated to this topic of, you know, how are we going to build the kind of organization and culture that um, you know, Duo's goal was to create a legacy of talent. Um, being based in Michigan, um, there was a strong hope um, to create uh, an alumni effect in that community. And so those were separated. And I think that it doesn't have to just come into, you know, a template and a deck um, in the beginning stages and, you know, wells, uh, a well-designed um, resource plan. You can start by having conversations and making sure that those conversations are more than conceptual um, and whiteboard sessions and all those kinds of things. Uh, a lot of times early stage founders are, they don't have the space to actually think about what their intent is and how they would do that. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe they're like, I want it to feel like this, but they don't know what they don't know about how to get there. And so conversations, I think, um, are really important. And then conversations around leadership. Um, to me, those two go hand in hand. What kind of leaders would be here if that was the kind of culture you wanted to design? Um, I don't think that culture is fit. I think it's additive. And so what would you want that new leader to bring to the culture that we don't have today? Um, those kinds of conversations help early stage founders think 
you know, remove from the tactics and start thinking about some things that are that make big moves early on before they get, you know, the maybe some of the practical pieces in place. I love it. The it's everyone can have conversations, and you know, with with some objective, we can make them purposeful. And I think that's a great, uh, easy step for people. Um, last couple of questions here as we um, move on out. So the the thing here I want to know is how do you professionally develop? If people wanted to read what you read, they want to listen to the podcast you listen to, they want to, you know, uh, get great at what they do in the same way you do. What resources would you direct them to? What are you consuming to improve yourself professionally? Yeah. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> um, which I'm sure everybody does, and is kind of the table stakes answers these days. Um, but Top five? I, Top three? <laughs> ooh, I don't know if I want to name shows. I'll get myself into trouble. But I do um, I do listen. I, I read David Green, um, a lot of his reports that are on people analytics. Um, analytics, data science is a place that I'm still doing my own growth and development on. I have an appetite for it more than I have, you know, a deep knowledge set there. And so I think that he has an amazing future of work insight. Josh Burson, I know, has an amazing benchmarking insight about the future. Um, I join communities that are adjacent to the work I do. So an example would be um, I join people tech advisors who look at HR technology um, and look at it from a demo perspective. And is this the kind of thing you would want to bring in? Um, and I, I joined that a while ago because I didn't have capacity to look at tools um, and really kind of stay ahead of, of things there. Um, redefining HR, as I mentioned, is a great community. Obviously, I have a bias for HR. Open source is a great community. And then one of the things I do still to this day that I have done for 10 years is every quarter I talk to someone in a different function in the organization and I just do a random coffee and I say, what does your world look like? What does your work world look like? Um, what matters to you? What's frustrating to you? Um, I think empathy is one of the most powerful things that we can have as a tool as, as we design culture. And the ability to have empathy is, is also the ability to seek to understand people's worlds. And as I mentioned, you know, HR can be isolating and it can cause you to assume that you know what people feel and think. Um, and so I, I try to challenge myself to say, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be an intern right now. I have no idea. Um, I'm just going to ask somebody. And so I would recommend, you know, that kind of development has really served me over the past 10 years. Um, and you get the extra benefit of building your network as well. I love that. That's an awesome tip. Um, lastly, how can people connect with you if they want to find you online? Where would they go and find you? <laughs> where would they go? I would say probably LinkedIn's the right place to go to connect, connect. Um, mm -hmm. For now, I have been a little bit quiet on social because I've been just head down building. Um, so I'm probably most responsible there. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Ambrosia, for joining us. Thank you for sharing all your insights. I can't wait to put this out into the world. Um, I'm so grateful. Thanks again. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me.